Hi, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. If you're still grabbing lunch, feel free to, to do that and get settled. I'm Laura Odata with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be discussing nuclear weapons spending in the 2013 budget. If you haven't already, when you came in, there's a bunch of great handouts from all of our speakers on the front table, so feel free to grab those before or after. I'm going to go ahead and run through the bios for all of our speakers, so then they can run through their presentations without me interrupting them. Our first speaker today is Chris Preble. He's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's author of three books on defense and foreign policy issues and has also published over 150 articles in major publications. Before joining Cato, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. Following Chris will be Russell Rumba, who is the Director of Budgeting for Foreign Affairs and Defense Program at the Stimson Center. Before Stimson, he was the defense analyst on the Senate Budget Committee and also previously served as a military legislative assistant for Congressman Jim Cooper. He also previously served as an operations, operations research analyst in the Office of Secretary of Defense's Program Analysis and Evaluation. You guys really don't make this easy for me with your backgrounds. Finally, we'll have Laura Peterson, who heads the Taxpayers for Common Sense National Security Program, which includes oversight of the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and State Department budgets. Prior to that, Laura is an associate editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, and she also worked for 18 months in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Herzegovina as an editor and correspondent for publications, including the San Francisco Chronicle and the Cairo Times. And with that, I will turn the mic over to Chris. Thank you, Laura. <clears throat> Thank you, Laura. Thanks to Laura and Russell for agreeing to join us. Thanks to all of you. We had a, a nice turnout today, so thanks for coming out. Um, the title of my talk today is The Origins of the Nuclear Triad. And um, when you look at some of the earliest arguments in favor of the nuclear weapons triad, of course, this is the mix of bombers, land-based missiles, and submarine-launched missiles that uh, constitute today's arsenal. When you look at the arguments in favor of this, you find that there really weren't any, or not very good ones. Uh, some of the leading scholars on nuclear weapons, including Norman Pomar and Robert Norris and Lawrence Friedman, contend that the triad was a post hoc justification for a force already in being. The case for the triad is not without merit, writes Friedman, in the evolution of nuclear strategy. There is an obvious danger in putting all eggs in one basket. If the deterrent depended solely on one type of delivery vehicle, then the adversary's defense problems would be simplified. However, he continues, although these arguments on behalf of the triad justified a variety in offensive systems, they did not necessarily mean that all types must be maintained in large numbers, nor was it obvious that every system required the many rounds of costly modernization that have gone into all three legs of the triad since it first became reality. Um, James Schlesinger, Secretary of Defense in the uh, Nixon and Ford administrations, uh, told a congressional committee in 1974 that to some extent the rationale of the triad was a rationalization. So what is it today in the 21st century? Uh, is the triad still just a rationalization, a familiar buzzword invoked to affirm one's pro-nuclear bona fides, or is there a compelling strategic rationale for still having three different delivery vehicles? That is the question that Benjamin Friedman and I have set out to answer as part of our project from Triad to Dyad, a research initiative made possible 
by the generous support of the Plowshares Fund. At this time, I want to thank Plowshares uh, for their support, which was also instrumental in uh, helping to bring this briefing together today. I also want to thank Mark Hauser, a research intern at Cato, who has been a tremendous help over the last few weeks and actually months, uh, help in culling through the considerable literature that's out there on the evolution of nuclear doctrine and force structure. So thanks to Mark. I know he's around here somewhere. Um, I have been studying the history of the triad, and I have to confess this is not the first time I've studied the history of the triad. I actually studied it many, many, many years ago as a graduate student, and my dissertation was, was on uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, but I've gone back and examined some of the leading arguments for such a diverse array of delivery vehicles in the 1960s and then revisiting um, whether or not these arguments should still prevail today and into the future. And I ask whether uh, fewer delivery vehicles might be required for an arsenal that has shrunk dramatically since its Cold War peak, and whether a force that was focused on maintaining the minimum necessary for de deterrence could be still smaller and far less costly. Finally, I also consider some of the arguments that might be made on behalf of a triad if the object of the nuclear arsenal was something more than simply to deter an attack on the United States. And I say that simply. That's obviously a very important thing. Uh, but in fact, there are many additional requirements, including the presumed need to deter an attack uh, against other countries and the desire to have nuclear weapons available for offensive military operations that have uh, driven U.S. strategic planning to a considerable extent in the past and appears to still be doing so today. So over the next few minutes, I just want to share some of my preliminary findings uh, on the history of the triad, including some of the leading arguments for and against the particular delivery vehicles as they uh, were first deployed in the, in the 1950s, late 1950s, and early 1960s. I'm just going to go very quickly and then hand over to Russell and to Laura uh, to bring us into the present day. Um, put yourself back in the 1950s. These uh, delivery vehicles, such as they were, were relatively few and far between, especially in the early 1950s when the arsenal was, was really quite small. Uh, they were limited, all limited to some extent, by uh, their range, their accuracy, and the warhead yield. Uh, the bombers, obviously, were the first leg of what we know as the triad. They remained the primary delivery vehicle for the U.S. nuclear weapons uh, through the 50s into the 60s. But of course, the United States also experimented with rocket missile programs. The first generation ICBMs came online. Those, that is, the first ones that were capable of reaching the Soviet Union from launch pads in the United States first came online in 1960. Uh, the United States had overwhelming striking power throughout this period. Uh, the Soviet nuclear program was beset by problems. Uh, they had started, obviously, later than the United States, and their arsenal was smaller. Uh, what's more, they lacked forward bases from which to launch bombers and missiles, and the missiles that they had were large, immobile, and inaccurate. That was not, however, the perspective at the time, uh, talk of bomber gaps and missile gaps and the delicate balance of terror reflected the American people's persistent anxiety. And I think the, the easiest way to explain the growth both of the arsenal and of the delivery vehicles in the 1950s was that if a few delivery vehicles made sense, and if a few warheads made sense, more was even better. That was the thinking in the 50s and 60s. And nuclear weapons played a large role in U.S. strategic planning during the 1950s. In fact, an increasingly important role as the decade wore on. We know now that Dwight Eisenhower did have some concerns uh, about nuclear weapons, and yet he shifted the nation's deterrent away from conventional arms to 
uh, nuclear weapons, two famously massive retaliation, uh, and that cl claimed that the United States would respond with full retaliatory capability against any attack, uh, including the nuclear weapons. Uh, and during Eisenhower's eight years in office, we know that the arsenal expanded dramatically. I, I say in my note, exploded, no pun intended. This is a process that's very meticulously documented by uh, historian David Allen Rosenberg. Um, and, you know, throughout this process, I, I do think there are some parallels to the present day because there were some winners and losers, bureaucratic winners and losers inside the Beltway. I guess it wasn't called that back then. Uh, you know, the Army and Marine Corps shrunk in the 1950s, and the Air Force grew. Uh, they had always had primary responsibility for nuclear deterrence, and they acquired more uh, money, more authority, power, et cetera. They had the bombers, and then eventually they had the missiles. Uh, but of course, late in the 1950s, the Navy got into the game with their Polaris submarine-launched missile. This was the third leg and is still today. Submarine-launched missiles are still the third leg in what we know as the triad. I went back and I looked at Eisenhower's attitudes about the Polaris, and it's, it's clear that he was never completely enamored of this weapon system. Um, and I think it's obvious that in the, in the late 1950s, he never would have embraced a single delivery vehicle uh, for what he saw as the essential task of nuclear deterrence. Still, by the time he left office in January 1961, he may have come around, I think, to see the intrinsic value of SLBMs. Uh, the first uh, Polaris submarine, the uh, George Washington, had gone out on its first operational deployment in November 1960. Uh, of course, that's the same month that John Kennedy uh, won the election. And in the meeting, there were two meetings between uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy between the election and the inauguration. Uh, and in at least one of those meetings, Eisenhower might have uh, stated to Kennedy the importance of this new deterrent force. Of course, I, and I've written about this elsewhere, uh, Kennedy had repeatedly knocked Eisenhower for allowing a missile gap to develop, and it may be that Eisenhower was trying to overcompensate, kind of convince his successor uh, that he, in fact, had not just uh, <laughs> sold the farm, so to speak, uh, just allowing the country to be, to be completely uh, uh, vulnerable. And, and Kennedy wasn't entirely convinced. He moved forward with his plans, especially uh, to uh, boost spending on land-based, especially Minutemen ICBMs. But the Polaris technology was transformational, and we see that Robert McNamara was clearly a fan. He described the weapon as ideal for counter-city retaliation, um, and that's really the key criteria that has driven uh, the, the uh, fixation on, on SLBMs from, from, from the very beginning. The force grew to 41 submarines by 1967. That's just seven and a half years after the first one was deployed. Uh, kind of ponder that for a minute, considering all the other uh, ships and planes that we're building that take far, far longer and still aren't in service. I digress. Um, and to be fair, SLBMs have undergone a series of technological improvements uh, that really uh, overcome many of the leading objections to them in the 1950s. They're far more accurate, uh, they have greater range, uh, and they always were the most survivable leg of the triad. Uh, the, the main knock in terms of their survivability was their ability to be linked to the National Command Authority, the communication networks, and I think there's been recent work, uh, fairly recent work, showing that even that supposed vulnerability is far less serious uh, today as it was, and certainly not as serious as when the Polaris first went to sea. Um, and so that's where I kind of move from the historical to, to the more to the present day. 
Uh, but I, I invoke a, a historian or a historical figure to make my argument. Because we could say that this triad never really made sense. It might never have been necessary, frankly, to have had all three uh, legs, even when the, the technology was still uncertain. But Admiral Arleigh Burke's Chief of Naval Operations from 1955 to 1961, unprecedented three terms as CNO, he was a leading advocate for what he called finite deterrence, that's maintaining the smallest number of warheads and delivery vehicles necessary to ensure a survivable second strike. One of my favorite lines, in the spring of 1960, uh, Burke told Henry Kissinger's research seminar at Harvard, you very seldom see a cowboy, even in the movie, movies, wearing three guns. Two is enough. In uh, the Air Force and SAC, especially, they initially dismissed the strategic value of the Polaris, but once Air Force leaders became convinced that the, that the SLBMs would survive, uh, they worked assiduously to bring the vessels under their operational control with mixed success. Um, I then go into a little bit uh, of the different criteria that have been spelled out for what you would want to have in a, a credible, survivable uh, uh, deterrent, especially a second strike capability. We'll go into that in, in our future research. But I think it bears asking whether the criteria that were developed and prevailed uh, back in the Cold War when we were facing the Soviet Union are the same and still should prevail today when we are, of course, uh, facing a very different sort of threat. Um, and yet, the triad that was cr constructed around these Cold War criteria really lives on. Late last year, a group of senators um, offered an amendment to the Defense Authorization Bill expressing a sense of the Senate that the United States should maintain a triad. Uh, and another, uh, Senators Kyle and Luger proposed a slightly more ambiguous language stating that the U.S. deterrent is assured by a robust triad. And they don't spell it out, but the implication is that we would be dangerously vulnerable if we had anything less than a three-legged stool. Um, I'm left with the question, how much further would the arsenal in terms of warheads have to shrink uh, before such arguments just are patently absurd. And I think we're approaching that point already. I mean, consider this. The triad was perfected in the 1960s. The arsenal peaked in 1967 at 31,255 warheads. 31,000. Uh, now we have fewer than 5,000 with plans to go down to 1,550. And some people believe, even nuclear weapons advocates believe, that we could have a credible nuclear deterrent with fewer than 1,000 warheads. So if the number of warheads in the arsenal continues to come down, uh, and we, will we continue to develop uh, and deploy three different delivery vehicles? And I think the cost and redundancy is hardly offset by the benefits. I'll just focus on one last, because I, I don't want to be seen as a total Navy partisan, although I am. <coughs> um, take the example of the Navy's uh, Ohio replacement program. The, the Navy requested $564.9 million for continued research and development on the Ohio replacement, known more commonly as SSBNX. This will likely prove just to be a rounding error in the life of this program. The Pentagon's first official estimate of the life cycle cost for SSBNX came in at a whopping $347 billion life cycle cost. The Navy currently estimates that procurement costs alone will total $5.6 billion for each boat, boats 2 through 12, with, of course, the first boat being higher than that, $5.6 billion apiece. And the Navy says they are going to try to get that cost down to about 4.9, but I think it's worth uh, speculating on how successful they'll be at that. 
cost, I'm going to close with this. Cost is hardly the most important factor uh, in terms of considering which del delivery vehicles should be retained, but I think it's irresponsible not to ask hard questions about the need for <laughs> SLBMs, ICBMs, and man bombers into the future. It would be a grave mistake to allow inertia and a near religious devotion to the status quo, uh, a status quo that was first developed in the midst of the Cold War. It would be a mistake to allow that to continue to dictate our posture and doctrine going forward. And I hope that Congress excesses, uh, exercises its oversight re responsibility and asks hard questions of the Obama administration's nuclear plan in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Morning, folks. Uh, thanks, of course, first of all, for being here. Thanks to Laura and Chris for having me. And uh, thanks for Laura for policing up whatever I fail to say intelligently. Um, I'm going to take a step back from where Chris started. I'm going to try to set context and scale of the broader nuclear enterprise. You heard Chris talk about warheads, and you heard Chris talk about delivery vehicles, and you started hearing him talk about dollars. I'm going to try to paint what the U.S. spends on the nuclear enterprise. And I'm going to focus mainly on dollars. We can come back later, or I will come back later, and try to tie that back into uh, delivery vehicles. I'm not even going to make a stab at warheads. Uh, just to give you a sense of what's going on. So the first thing to understand is there are two parts to our nuclear enterprise. Almost everything uh, Chris talked about is in the Department of Defense. But since 1946, since the McMahon Act, military nuclear power has actually been run by civilian agency. Right now, that civilian agency is the Department of Energy. So let's start with those two and look at the Department of Energy first. 65% of the Department of Energy's budget goes to what's called atomic energy defense activities name showed up in 1976. Atomic sounds a little bit uh, outdated, but that's what it's called. Um, $17 billion. Quite a lot of money already. Of that, it divides up into two pieces. First thing you have is defense environmental cleanup. Defense environmental cleanup cleans up sites that developed nuclear weapons. Now, to be honest, most of those sites are from the Manhattan Project. Uh, most of uh, you know, the there are plenty of people in this room who can tell you more about the current sites, but uh, they're not leaking nuclear material at all times. That wasn't totally true back when we didn't really know what we're doing. Uh, and so most of that $6 billion goes to costs that were problems that were incurred a very long time ago. The second part is the National Nuclear Security Administration. Now we're getting to closer to what people mean by nuclear weapons, specific nu nuclear weapons. Uh, the biggest part of NNSA, National Nuclear Security Administration, is weapons activities. They're in charge of maintaining the stockpile, and that's about $8 billion a year. Again, 65% of uh, atomic energy defense activity. So we got 65, 65. This is starting to make sense here. But it's not all NNSA does. Specifically, it has another fairly large program called nonproliferation, which is about $2.5 billion in the FY13 budget request. Uh, $2.5 billion isn't as big as the $8 billion for weapons activities, but not really anything to sneeze at. And nonproliferation has very little to do with our nuclear weapons. It's mainly about 
other people's nuclear weapons and trying to stop the spread of them uh, in a lot of different ways, both technical, terrorists, other states, that kind of thing. And finally, there's another billion and a half for two other programs, naval reactors, which build the reactors that make the Navy ships go, of which three kinds of Navy ships go by nuclear power, aircraft carriers, which no longer carry any nuclear weapons, attack submarines, which don't carry nuclear weapons but are involved in sub-hunting, so maybe that matters in our nuclear weapons. They're, they're protecting our nuclear subs by looking for other people's nuclear subs. It's a tough question. And then last, uh, our nuclear subs, the boomers, are powered by nuclear power as well, so that clearly is a nuclear weapons uh, cost. And then last, there is the office of the administrator. So that's tough. I just threw a lot of numbers at you all by waving my hand in the air, and I'm not sure that really proves what the numbers are. But at the end, we're going to say there's two big numbers, right? There's a very narrow number, weapons activities, about $8 billion, and there's a big number, uh, atomic energy defense activities, $18 billion. Then we have the Department of Defense. So far, I've only used the word billions when talking about money, which billions is a B, and it's a big figure. But forget about $18 billion. The Department of Defense, base budget, not talking about war budget, FY13 request, $525 billion. 525. 32 times everything about atomic energy defense activities. The scale of the Defense Department is something that's really hard to come to terms with. Uh, you know, 50% of our discretionary funding, 20% of all government funding, the largest employer, the largest landholder. It's big. It's really big. Uh, and that introduces a really wide range of possible costs. What in the Department of Defense goes to nuclear weapons? That is a question that has plagued people for a very long time. Nobody really knows. Uh, and, and I'd stop and say, nobody really knows, not because of any malfeasance. Uh, there's a lot of theoretical and hard questions to get at. Do you count something that supports nuclear activities, but, or nuclear weapons, but also supports conventional weapons? Uh, most importantly, DOD's budget systems just don't look at it that way. Uh, the simplest example I can use is we recruit people into the military. There is an entire infrastructure to do that. Some of those people become missileers out at Minot Air Force Base. Uh, they were recruited using that recruiting infrastructure. But so was the infantryman who showed up in Fort Benning, Georgia, or, you know, Chris a few years ago. Recruiting budget all paid for him, too. So how do I allocate that to nuclear weapons? That is the thorny question. Uh, I'm going to simplify it for you. So I'm going to say there's, like Department of Energy, there's a few ways we can look at spending within the Department of Defense. Um, the first thing is this core account, very similar to weapons activities. Uh, it's called MFP-1, Major Force Program 1, Strategic Forces, and it's $12 billion the largest single part. And to be honest, that's really what you think about when you think about nuclear weapons. It covers the cost of almost everything Chris talked about, bombers, subs, uh, ICBMs. It co covers the cost of people who run them. It covers the cost of the trucks that drive to them. Uh, it's fairly comprehensive. Then there's other stuff. Is missile defense nuclear weapons spending? Another $8 billion. DOD also has its non-proliferation funding, about a billion dollars. And then last, last but not least, what do I do about all that recruiting? And oh, by the way, it's not just recruiting. 
So the secret about MFP1, like I said, if you want a narrow definition, it's pretty good. But it's not that good. It was created in the 60s. Nobody quite maintains it. And it's got two really big gaps besides these difficult to apportion costs. The first one, research and development. Okay, MFP1 covers the existing subs, the existing bombers, and the existing ICBMs. But it doesn't actually cover the next ones. Those all live in research and development funding. Originally, when the years were created, research and development would start out in a separate uh, MFP, but then as soon as it became associated with a major force program, strategic forces, nuclear forces, it would be moved over. Well, nobody worries so much about that anymore, and even though we now know there is a next generation bomber and there is a next generation sub, those costs are still living over in the R&D, not in MFP1. Uh, for right now, that's not actually that much money. It's about $3 billion a year. Then you have command and control, primarily satellites. Uh, a lot of the headquarters costs are actually in MFP1. But satellites, again, because they provide support not just to nuclear forces, but to conventional forces as well, aren't in MFP1. Uh, and satellites can be expensive. You know, They can be half a billion dollars each to put up into the sky. Um, add another $3 billion, and then last but not least, that operations and support, recruiting, medical costs, family housing, uh, roughly another $3 billion. All of them, I'm cheating and lost some rounding there. I'm going to tell you it's about $10 billion extra in the Department of Defense. And I will tell you, that's a pretty interesting number to arrive at. Most importantly, if I can put in a plug, Again, as Chris said, thanks to Plowshares, we are about to release a report, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, that will lay out how we got to that number and why we think that $10 billion is a big deal and why it's important. Um, now let me see if I can run those numbers back up for you. So you got $12 billion. That is definitely nuclear weapons. I'm going to tell you it's another $10 billion of other stuff that is definitely, but not exclusively, nuclear weapons. So. It's a little bit trickier, but still, 22, uh, $22 billion. Then I have missile defense, another $8 billion, nonproliferation, which if I sum both sides up, the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense, I'll give you a choice. Do you want a really big definition or do you want a really narrow definition? On the big definition, we're talking about uh, $48 billion a year. On the narrower definition, we're still talking about $31 billion a year in the FY13 budget. There's a big span there. 50 to 30 is a big jump, but 30 billion is still a lot of money. Keep in mind, it's only 6% of the Department of Defense spending. spending. When you look at the Department of Defense, most of that is not nuclear weapons. Now, you spend 6% of a lot, you still get a lot. $30 billion is still a lot of money. Uh, and then, just to echo what Chris said, and I think Laura's going to pick up on this. We're also about to modernize all three legs of the triad. The bomber right now is, uh, was 300 million last year, and it's another 300 million this year. The sub was a billion dollars last year, but they delayed it by two years, so it's only 600 million this year. And the ICBM is about 70 million right now, uh, although it's supposed to become about uh, half a billion dollars a year pro program down the years. Um, so right now it's still only about a billion dollars a year for those future programs. But in the next 10 years, it's going to become five to six billion dollars a year. Um, again, 30 billion a year every year, that's five to six billion isn't that big a deal. But it's a significant increase 
especially as we're doing this all at the same time. And I think Laura's going to tee that up, so I will slide out to let her do it. All right, I'm going to try to keep it short here. Got my phone, got my clock, so you can all ask questions. Um, Thank you, Russell. I do. I am going to talk about some of the um, some of the programs that were that are sort of in the news right now. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Taxpayers for Common Sense is a nonpartisan budget watchdog. We're based here in D.C. and um, we're a taxpayer advocate. So we're looking at we don't actually work on tax policy so much, but we work we look at how the government spends your money and. Uh, particularly in the ways in which they may not be spending it terribly well. So we are sort of the ultimate follow the money organization. We really, we go through the bills and we, you know, we, we trace the dollars. And um, in doing that, I can tell you that following the money has led us back over and over again over the years to the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy um, is a federal agency which um, consistently makes the GAO's annual list of departments with um, ma severe management difficulties. They have an average cost and schedule overrun um, on most of their projects. That's something like, um, I think it's about like an average of 50%. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's very high. And as Russ pointed out, the majority of actually the majority of dollars in DOE goes to nuclear weapons. So um, so the NNSA uh, is an agency that you you know you that you really need to keep an eye on. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, and we do. And um, what I want to talk about a little bit is about how um, some, some of the, some examples of projects that are, um, that are causing us some consternation right now. Uh, you know, at Taxpayers, we look both at specific projects that are, you know, wasteful and that we don't think need to be there, but we also look a lot at process, about the way in which projects are funded, about oversight, um, at ways in which, you, about uh, acquisition um, legislation, so that, because um, you know, there's only, there's not that many of us at taxpayers, so we can't follow every single dollar in the federal government, but we are always looking for ways to um, make the process a little bit better. And that's another reason why we've been looking so closely at, um, at some of these NSA projects. One of them, sort of the poster, the, the poster child that we've been working on for a long time, is a is a building at the Los Alamos um, National Laboratory. For those of you who don't know, when um, NSA is basically charged with the the care and feeding of the nuclear weapons complex, and that essentially consists of a series of labs um, and research facilities across the, the country. And so, it's eight actually. So, um, depending on what you consider a research facility. So Lawrence Livermore is a is a very large lab in New Mexico. Um, and there it's it's where the Manhattan Project, um, one, one of the birthplaces of the Manhattan Project and um, has been has been the locus of a lot of nuclear uh, nu nuclear weapons research and activity over the decades. And um, the Chemistry and Metallurgy, Metallurgical Research Replacement Nuclear Facility, CMRR for short. I mean, even the acronym is a little bit mind-boggling, but it's actually CMRNF, but you need to remember that, um, is a building that is, is, is going to be replacing two other very old research buildings uh, there on, in the laboratory. Or, so this is, or this is basically how, what NSA 
um, told Congress years ago when they when they said that they needed to replace it. Um, they then went, this, this is a good example of sort of how a project and process can both, uh, can, can, can both be lacking. They then went on a, a, a concurrent sort of development and construction um, process in which they basically started digging holes in the ground before they even had a full design, uh, you know, before they even really had blueprints. And so there's, there's been a lot of questions raised about the size and um, the expanse of this thing. This is a, the building itself went from being about, um, let's see, about half a, half a billion dollars, or the, the estimates um, have gone from, from about half a billion dollars to I think it's about 14 right now. So sorry, sorry, six billion today. Um, so. I mean that's that's and, and it's already years behind schedule. Um, this is this is a building that was supposed to a lot of research um, functions were supposed to move into two buildings, and and essentially the older the older um, parts of the research facilities have mostly been moved over, and there's now you know hundreds of yards um, square feet of building which no one's entirely sure what's supposed to go in there, so. This is just, it's an example that I want to point out of, um, of the kinds of trouble that you run into when you have, and I think this is sort of the takeaway of both Russ and, and Chris's um, discussions, is when you, you know, when, when you have an agency and a national security function that becomes entrenched and people stop looking really hard at do you, you know, what the real needs are, what uh, our functions are, how it changes, uh, and how it changes from day to day. Um, now, unfortunately, CMRR is it being on a national lab. I've been to Los Alamos, but um, most of you actually couldn't go see it, even though you're congressional staff, because you have to get certain kinds of clearance. And actually, most members of Congress can't see it. So it's actually, it's turning a little bit of a he said, she said, but this administration and many members of Congress have agreed that actually the project is much larger than it needs to be. And in fact, the administration froze funding for the project in uh, the FY13 uh, appropriations bill and we will see now of course there's many members of Congress that would like to you know make some changes in the administration's um, um, budget request which I'm going to talk about in a minute I wanted to just point out one other um, project that we're looking that that has sort of raised our hackles and that's something called the mixed oxide fuel facility um, this is uh, in the Savannah River site, but it's actually in South Carolina, not Savannah, Georgia. So this is something that was actually, this actually has more to do with nuclear energy than nuclear weapons, though um, it has gotten quite a bit of government money. Uh, nuclear energy, I'm not sure if how many of you guys follow this, but this is also something that this and past administrations have, are really pushing, and they have uh, put a lot, it's a very heavily subsidized um, uh, field and that this administration has put a lot of money mostly through um, loan guarantees into nuclear energy um, uh, generators so this this facility was actually supposed to you know create some new was created to create some new fuel for these nuclear energy reactors by mixing um, spent plutonium fuel from disassembled plutonium pits well unfortunately there's not enough of the pits to make the fuel and then the one company that was supposed to buy the fuel pulled out. So there's literally, there's no, 
there, there's, there, there, there's no input or output for this facility. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's, it's up to almost $5 billion now um, in costs uh, compared to its, to its, I think it was originally supposed to be, again, about half a billion. So this brings me to what, what I want to close with, which is just putting it, putting all these discussions in the context of, of today's political environment. You may, some of you may have been here because these issues have actually been in the news in the last couple of weeks, mostly because the, the House uh, Energy and Water Probes Committee and also the House Armed Services Committee have marked up their bills, their FY13 bills, and there's, lo and behold, some disagreement about um, some of the numbers in there. And I, th I think that we're gonna keep seeing a lot of this in the coming year. Um, and, that is and that is for the same reason that defense spending is now a hot and sexy topic, which it, it certainly wasn't when I started doing this a few years ago. Um, and that is jobs. I mean, when the economy is tight, you, members of Congress start thinking more and more, you know, politics becomes increasingly local, even though the problem is very much a national problem. Um, and so even though we all need to cut back and, and on our spending, and you hear a lot you can come in from the administration about the, the need to separate needs from wants. And I think that most anyone would agree that the two facilities I'm talking about, plus, you know, the, the, the four extra subs or the, you know, or, or possibly lots of elements of the new bomber are, are wants instead of needs. Uh, but, but because of the parochial element, you're, gonna, you're just gonna start to see a lot of pushback. And, um, you know, mocks, if you just, just, just you know, just to point out the obvious, it's in South Carolina. You'll work for if you all want to go back and look at your um, your congressional Facebooks and figure out whose district it lands in. You will see that it in fact lands in some districts of two very powerful um, members of Congress. So this 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 is all has to be factored into um, decisions that are made about nuclear spending. And I would just encourage you all to keep that in mind when you hear lots of. There's going to be a lot of rhetoric about how a lot of this, this stuff um, really are needs. They are needs that we need to keep the country safe, when in fact I think that there's actually a lot of agreement about, um, about the fact that they are firmly in the want, cat, uh, the want category. But um, we're going to be hearing a lot in the coming year about um, their necessity. So just I would keep the, the, the local political um, aspects in mind. So I'm going to... And there.